And for our study this afternoon, I invite you to turn back with me to the epistle of Jude, and we'll be reading verses 20 through 23. Jude, verses 20 to 23. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So we have been considering this morning the defenses we need to Uh, use as we combat false teachings, as we combat apostates and apostasy. And Jude tells us how we are going to do that. We are to remember the forewarnings of the apostles. Then we are to remain in the love of God. Keep in the love of God. And uh, What we are seeing, James, or rather the Apostle Jude, tells us various ways in which we are going to keep in the love of God. We were considering in general terms this morning, such as we keep ourselves in the love of God by obeying his word. Uh, We keep ourselves in the love of God by keeping alive in our hearts, in our memories, the exceedingly gracious sacrificial, redeeming love of God for us to the extent that we are doing that, to the extent that we are focused on him, we will be preserved from the error of apostasy. And so we come this afternoon to consider what Jude specifically tells us as regards how we are to keep ourselves in this love of God. And Jude cites three necessary activities to this end. First of all, he cites the need for his readers and by extension for you and me to be ever building up ourselves in our most holy faith. He says there in verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. According to one lexicon, building, the word building means to increase the potential of something or someone with focus upon the process involved. So that what Jude is saying here to us is that we enhance our ability to keep ourselves in the love of God and so ward off falling from the faith to the extent that we are focusing on building ourselves up on our most holy faith. That's suggested by the tense of the verb, this is to be a continuous, lifelong endeavor. We are to be ever engaging in the process of building up ourselves on our most holy faith. Now, the faith to which we are called here, the faith in which we are to be building up ourselves is not, it's very important that we get this, is not first and foremost our individual subjective expression of faith and trust in God. That, of course, is implied, but that's not the faith 
to which Jude is essentially referring. You know, of course, faith is used at least in two senses in Scripture. There's personal faith, there's that subjective element of trust in God, but then there is faith that is used in the sense of that general body, that uh, body, that entire body of teaching, general body of Christian doctrine, of divine commands and warnings given by our Lord Jesus, handed down by the apostles, known as the faith. And this is what Jude is actually referring to here in our text. It was that to which he referred in verse 3 when he charges readers to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And here in verse 20, he describes this faith as your most holy faith. Your most holy faith. And why would Paul describe the faith we embrace as Christians, that is to say the general body of teaching, Christian teachings, Christian doctrines that consists of warnings, commands, and so on, why would we, why would Jude describe it as your most holy faith? First of all, it is a holy faith. Why? Because it promotes teaching that accords with godliness. It promotes teaching that accords with godliness. First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 3. According to Titus chapter 1 verse 1, it is a faith from which we derive knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. So it is a holy faith because it has to do with godliness. It is a holy faith because it generates godly living, holy living in our lives. Secondly, Jude speaks of this faith as a most holy faith. No, it is not just as a holy faith, but a most holy faith because it consists of the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, first Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. And the word that he uses there for sound is actually the word, the Greek word there he uses is a word from which we get our English word hygiene. This faith consists of the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then third, Jude characterizes this faith, notice, as your most holy faith. Why? Because it is a faith which his readers have personally embraced, a faith to which they have personally subscribed. And that is why in Titus chapter 1 and verse 1, it is fittingly referred to as the faith of God's elect. It is the faith of God's elect, that is to say, it is the faith embraced by the people of God. It is the faith embraced by the saints, the body of God's people. And for us then as Christians, uh, to uh, find safety, to find defense from falling into apostasy, Jude is suggesting the way to go is to build up ourselves on this holy faith of ours that faith that's codified in Scripture, the Holy Word of God. And we build ourselves up in this faith. How? How do we build ourselves up in the faith? Let me give you some suggestions. First of all, and this is very simple, by studying it. We build up ourselves in the faith by studying the faith, by striving toward a working knowledge of its doctrines first, or rather, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Paul said to Timothy, here was the instruction Paul gave to Timothy, Pastor Timothy, he says, Do your best to present yourselves to God, a workman who needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The King James Version says, Study 
But the Greek word that is used there carries the idea of more than study. It carries the idea of exerting ourselves, of straining, as it were, every nerve, every fiber of our being to be sharp in the word of God. And this study of the faith involves being under the teaching ministry of trained, gifted personnel that God has placed in the church. We saw that this morning in Sunday School, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. God has given to the church pastor, teachers, evangelists for the perfecting of the saints for the work of ministry. But this study has also to be personal. It has to be personal. It cannot be just in the setting of public corporate teaching of the word of God. It must be personal. And like the Berean Christians we heard about last Sunday afternoon, we must dig daily into this word, into the word of God to ensure that the things we have been taught, the things we have been hearing are truly in line with the scriptures, Acts chapter 17 and verse 11. This is the way we are going to be preserved. This is the way we are going to be protected. This is the way we are going to find defense against ungodliness and apostate Christianity. According to Ephesians chapter 4 verses 12 through 14, it is when we are built up in the faith, it is when we are built up in the faith that will, according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, 12 through 14, will attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, verse 14, here's what he says. To what end, Paul? Here's what he says. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So we see then how critical, how crucial the word of God is to the building up of our faith. We build up ourselves in our most holy faith by studying the word of God. Secondly, we build up ourselves in our most holy faith by storing it. We build ourselves up in our most holy faith by storing it. What do I mean by that? Storing it in our hearts and minds, not so much to be puffed up, with knowledge, but that we might not be overtaken by sin. Here's what the psalmist says, Psalm 119, verse 10. He says this, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And then thirdly, how are we going to build ourselves up on our most holy faith? Not only must we study it, store it in our hearts and minds, but we are to show its effect in our day-to-day living. What are we talking about here? We are to manifest through our day-to-day lives that this is a faith that effectively works itself out in deeds of love and obedience to God. To the extent that we are living the faith, we are manifesting its power in our lives, we are also building up a defense against apostasy. And then fourthly, we build ourselves up on our most holy faith by standing up for it. By standing up for it. Look, go back to verse 3. Jude says we are to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We are to champion the truths of God's word. We are not to have anything to do with any kind of compromise when it comes to the word of God. We must champion the straight-up teaching of the word of God. That is what is lacking in many places today, the straight-up preaching of nothing but the pure, unadulterated word of the living God. 
And so the challenge becomes, here's a challenge for us this afternoon. I challenge myself, I challenge you. How much are we building up ourselves in our most holy faith? The question is, are we studying it? Are we availing our, ourselves of those occasions of public teaching of the word of God where we gather ourselves together to sit under the teaching of the word of God? That's very important. And then, crucially, critically, are we personally in the word of God each day examining the scriptures to see whether, in fact, we are being taught the word of God? That is how we are going to steer clear of heresy and apostasy. But in the second place, so as to defend ourselves against apostasy, to keep ourselves in the love of God, how are we going to do that? We're going to keep ourselves in the love of God by praying in the Holy Spirit. By praying in the Holy Spirit. And the question is, what is meant by, the, by praying in the Holy Spirit? Well, let's begin by saying, what is not meant by praying in the Holy Spirit? Praying in the Holy Spirit is not what those in charismatic Pentecostal circles refer to as praying in tongues. To pray in the Spirit does not mean to pray in one's spirit, one's human spirit, silently, non-verbally. That's not what it means. Somebody says, listen, pray in the Spirit. Just pray in the Spirit. And what they really mean is pray silently, pray inwardly. That's not what Paul is talking about when he says pray in the Spirit. To pray in the Spirit does not mean praying in an emotionally high ecstatic state. To pray in the Spirit does not mean we, you know, we are, we, we are so passionate and, and vigorous and enthusiastic and all excited. You know, somebody says that's real prayer in the Spirit. Not necessarily. That might be purely of the flesh. To pray in the Holy Spirit means this. It means to pray in the realm or sphere of the Holy Spirit. It means to pray under his inspiration. It means to pray under his guidance, under his direction, to pray by his enabling power. As one Bible teacher puts it, it is to pray, quote, in his communion and power, not in reliance on our own wisdom and strength. In short, to pray in the Holy Spirit means to pray with total, absolute dependence on the Holy Spirit. I don't have to tell you this. You know this very well. That prayer as a spiritual exercise is not, typically speaking, a walk in the park. In fact, prayer in a very real sense is spiritual warfare. And I'm sure many of you will testify, there are times you go to pray and what happens? You, you don't even know what the next word you're going to utter. In fact, sometimes truth is you come up dry. You come up empty. Am I, tell, am I telling the truth? Yes, of course. Sometimes it is the hardest thing to pray. Why? Because naturally our default position is to be prayerless. How many get up this morning and spend time in prayer even before coming to church? Let's talk about during the week. How, many, how often do we give to personal private prayer? It's a discipline. 
Our hearts many times are called, our hearts many times are indisposed to praying as God would have us pray. And there are times when prayer is difficult. Why? Because even to utter, even to think through what we're going to say can be quite a challenge. Prayer sometimes, we find ourselves dry, empty. So to pray in the Spirit means to pray in the sphere of the Holy Spirit. It means to pray in dependence on the Holy Spirit. It is to pray with an understanding, with a recognition that this is a spiritual exercise which calls for spiritual enabling, for spiritual empowerment. And in contrast to the apostates, Jude describes as following their own ungodly passions, verse 18, as being devoid of the Spirit, verse 19, true believers in Christ, Jude is suggesting here, follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. They follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. By the way, let me just say here, when we talk about following the leading of the Holy Spirit, we're not talking about some vague, subjective, nondescript impression. People say, you know, I feel the leading of the Spirit. No, 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 no. The Bible says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. How does the Holy Spirit lead us? He leads us in paths of righteousness. He leads us to obey the Word of God. He quickens us in the way of delighting in the Word of God and obeying the Word of God. The true believer in Christ, in contrast to the apostates who are devoid of the spirits, who, who follow their own lust. The true believer in Christ follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. They yield themselves as well as their prayers to the Holy Spirit. You see, as we said, prayer is a spiritual exercise. And when we pray in the Holy Spirit, because you see, all that concerns true effective prayer to God comes under his province, province relates to his office, that is the Holy Spirit, this explains why in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, the Holy Spirit is alluded to as the spirit of grace and supplication. That is why Ephesians chapter 6 verse 18, as Paul discussed the whole matter of spiritual warfare, he says part of how we are going to deal with the principalities and powers, part of the way in which we are going to deal with the host of spiritual wickedness in high places, is this praying at all times in the spirit. And prayer being the distinct office of the Holy Spirit, it stands to reason why our access to God through Christ is in him. The Apostle Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, For by him we have one access to God through Christ. It is through Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit that you and I have access to God. That is why upon our conversion and our adoption into the family of God, he sent forth the word of God says in Romans chapter 8 verse 15, Galatians 4 verse 6, God has sent forth the spirit of his son, of it, God has sent forth the spirit into our hearts on account of which we cry, Abba, Father. The Word of God teaches in Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27, that it is the Holy Spirit who enables us to pray properly to God. How many of you know that we have to pray properly to God? I want to talk about praying properly to God. We're not talking about using fancy language. But the Bible does talk about praying properly. 
Listen to what Romans chapter 8, verses 26, 27 says concerning our ability to pray properly. He says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You know, we love to talk today about people who are prayer warriors. You've heard the expression, prayer warriors. You know the greatest prayer warrior? Yes, it's the Holy Spirit. The Bible says he intercedes for us as the saints. And he says, we don't know what to pray for as we are, but the Holy Spirit makes intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. I believe, my friend, based on this verse, these verses, that there are times when we find it difficult to utter. There are times when our minds are so muddied, we're not clear in our thinking, and sometimes, you know, we sigh, we groan, as it were. The Word of God suggests the Holy Spirit takes those signs, He takes those groanings, and in the presence of God, God who knows the mind of the Spirit, knows precisely what the Holy Spirit is praying for in connection with the people of God. That is why we need to pray in the Holy Spirit. And how crucial, how wide-ranging are the various ministries of the Holy Spirit to us as Christians. It is through the Holy Spirit, the Word of God teaches, that we mortify sin, we mortify the deeds of the body, it is through the Holy Spirit, the Word of God teaches, the Holy Spirit who leads us, who guides us, Romans chapter 8, verse 14. It is He who transforms us into the image of Christ, the likeness of Christ, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And among His other acts of ministry to us as Christians, the Holy Spirit we understand here in our text is the one who enables us to pray properly and effectively. So what this means, beloved, is this. It's not left to our initiative. It's not left to our ingenuity as to how to pray or what to pray for. Because left to ourselves, we tend toward, as we said earlier, prayerlessness. Apart from the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we drift off into all kinds of distracting thoughts while praying. Apart from his prompting, we tend to be indifferent. We tend to be indisposed toward praying. Apart from his enabling, we grow weary in pressing on, in persevering in prayer. Well, the fact that the Holy Spirit is so thoroughly involved in the prayer life of the Christian, that says to us something of the vital importance of prayer. That God himself, in the purse of the Holy Spirit should have the distinct office of helping the people of God to pray, suggests how important, how crucial and critical is prayer in the life of the Christian. If prayer is the means by which we establish and maintain communion with God, then for sure, praying in the power of the Holy Spirit is most crucial to our keeping ourselves in the love of God. Prayer, you see, is that which warms the heart. It is that which stirs the affections for God. 
prayers we learn from our Lord Jesus to Peter fortifies us against falling into temptation. Matthew 26, verse 41. Prayer is that which keeps us spiritually alert and on the defensive in our warfare against the devil and his host. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, because Paul says there, keep alert in it, watching at all times, praying in the Holy Spirit. And as such, prayer, we would say, is a formidable weapon of defense against apostasy. Now here's the third way we defend ourselves against apostasy as we keep ourselves with the love of God. So as to defend ourselves against apostasy, we are to keep ourselves in the love of God by expectantly waiting for the Lord's coming. By being expectant with regard to Christ's return. Verse 21. In the words of Jude, we are to be in that attitude of what he describes as waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus that leads to eternal life. We are to be waiting, he says. And the verb that's translated here as waiting is the same Greek verb that is found in Titus chapter 2 and verse 13 where Paul says the believer is waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ. At this point, of course, the concern will be raised. I thought we already have eternal life. I thought we are already in possession of eternal life. How then is it that we are told to wait for the mercy of God unto eternal life? Don't we, haven't we already been recipients of the mercy of, of God? Haven't we already received eternal life? You see, Scripture portrays this dual state of affairs in which believers are presently in possession of eternal life. We know that, of course, from John chapter 3, verse 36, John chapter 5, verse 24, John 6, 47, 1 John 5, verse 13, all of which make clear that right now we are in possession of eternal life. We enter into eternal life, not at death, but right now through faith in Christ. Yet at the same time, Scripture also teaches that at the coming of Christ, at the return of Christ, we will be granted eternal life. Matthew chapter 19, verse 29, Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, Galatians 6, verses 7 through 9, all make it clear that at the return of Christ, Christ is going to bring to us eternal life. And this is not really a contradiction if we understand that what Jude and the other writers of Scripture have in view is the full and final realization of our salvation and possession of eternal life, which will involve, among other things, our complete conformity to the image and likeness of Christ. We are already saved. We are already in possession of eternal life. We are, we are already been the recipients of God's mercy. But what is what Jude is saying and what the writers of the Scripture are saying is that at the coming of Christ, this eternal life and this salvation is going to be fully and finally manifested. It will come to fruition. It will come to absolute perfection in the glorification of our bodies where we are going to be made just like the Lord Jesus Christ. In any event, what is clear from verse 21 of our text is that not just at conversion, but right to the coming of Christ, our salvation, our deliverance, our possession of eternal life comes 
as a result of the mercy of God. It has nothing to do with our deservedness. It has everything to do with what God has done in Christ. Truth is, we deserve nothing but his wrath. We deserve nothing but his judgment. So Jude is saying that one way we'll be able to keep ourselves in the love of God and therefore be in a position to withstand spiritual declension and departure from the Lord is by waiting for the coming of the Lord, is by waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus that leads to eternal life. But how are we to wait? You see, that, it doesn't mean we passively fold our hands. It doesn't mean we grumble and murmur, oh, I wish he would come back. You know, there's that kind of waiting which the Bible has really countenance. The verb that is used here speaks of this eager longing, this eager anticipation. In fact, the, the imagery here is that of a person anticipating something, expecting someone, and is, as it were, on tiptoe with stretched neck, looking and waiting. That's the kind of expectation we are to have when it comes to the return, the prospect of Christ's return. The point is we lose sight, let's lose sight of the coming of Christ and all that his coming implies and the sobriety, the vigilance, discernment, the earnestness, the sense of spiritual priority which are crucial to Christian living soon disappear. leaving us vulnerable to spiritual disaster. Here's the point, and we're drawing to a close. It is the hope of Christ's return that will enable us to walk circumspectly. It is the prospect of his return, of his coming again, that will give us hope and fortitude amidst the chaos, amidst the confusion of our world. It is the prospect of his return that will keep us alert and on the outlook for distracting allurements of the world, yes, that will keep alive in our hearts love for the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a prospect of his coming again that will keep us focused on what matters most, that is, matters of eternal consequence. We're talking about such matters as godliness, holiness, righteousness. The goal of being found in him without spot or blemish and at peace, according to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. When we have in view the coming of Christ, we are going to walk circumspectly. We are going to walk in holiness. We are going to walk in godliness. We are going to steer clear of worldly allurements. We are going to steer clear of that which is distracting from the Lord. We are going to be paying attention to building our lives on the word of God to the extent that we are focusing on the return of Christ, we will ward off, by the grace of God, apostasy. I think we have said a mouthful this afternoon. Another time we'll look at verses 22 and 23, where Jude gives us yet another guideline, another line of defense with regard to how we ward off apostasy. May God bless his truths to our hearts. May we thank him for the resources he has given us. May we thank him for Lord Jesus, who has won the victory for us. Amen.